So um, I'd just like to come out here uh, to formally congratulate um, drugs for winning the war on drugs. <laughs> the United States has no right, no desire, and no intention to impose our form of government on anyone else. No democracy can survive when its public life, its public goods are so privatized and militarized and individualized. So you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. So we tell a handful of billionaires who become phenomenally richer, yeah, you're going to have to pay more taxes. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So today we're going to be talking about the opioid epidemic. And this is on the heels of some information that just came out about Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, so recently um, Johnson & Johnson has settled they they've settled in new york for um 230 million in a settlement for their role in um in the opioid crisis new New york attorney general her office in a statement on saturday said that the agreement bans uh johnson and johnson from promoting opioids through any means and prohibiting lobbying about such products at the federal state and local level so yeah so this um this whole lawsuit and this um, settlement really stems from them saying that uh, this court saying that Johnson and Johnson's role in marketing these opioids has led to significant damage and suffering as it pertains to the opioid epidemic in the United States. Wow. No kidding. That's actually, I had no idea, um, you know, when we decided to talk about it for this episode that it had like such a deep impact and even like you know optimistically i might even go as far as to say like a precedent to ban a corporation from lobbying like i didn't even know that the american government had the capacity to do that you know what i mean like as it currently operates right i mean when you look at like the history of the war on drugs and you know you you look at the history of um of of opioids in general yeah i mean it's just crazy like if you go back to um like marijuana i don't know have you ever seen the film um or or heard of the the reefer madness film back from like the 1930s -hmm. where they they would i'm living it pretend (laughs) (laughs) just kidding they they would pretend that um you know if you smoked marijuana or or if you you know ate it or took it in somehow then it would result in like you know you acting like you like just took shrooms or, or ecstasy or you'd go on like this killing or raping rampage which was just like total fabrication and nonsense. People really do not understand like what weed does. Like, I feel like if you don't smoke weed, you know, and not to sound like some kind of like freaking stoner or something, but I, I think that like, you know, people have this impression that it makes you like hallucinate. Like we tell kids that it makes them like, you know, it slows down your development or like whatever, like all literally all it does is calm you down. Like that's, it or sometimes for some people it will make them anxious instead of calming them down but like (laughs) i feel like marijuana like we could go on for like an entire another episode about like the war on drugs as it pertains to like marijuana but like sorry what were you gonna say yeah it's crazy though because i mean and so much of that hysteria has has led to you know things like um like in 1970 nixon putting marijuana on the controlled substance or with the controlled substance act listing it as a schedule one drug um is it really a schedule one drug not not anymore at at the time it was though that's in the idea and the idea was well um 
blacks and white hippies who aren't likely to vote for us. And there have been Nixon aides who've like come out and admit this. Oh, like yeah. the idea was, hey, these people aren't going to vote for us. They're not our constituency. So let's, um, you know, criminalize this drug that they're using and basically put them in prison so they can't vote for us or can't vote against us. And then fast forward to now when you have, you know, I mean, marijuana is legal in, in Michigan and many other states at least. But the opioid crisis, really going back to... um. 1996, when Purdue Pharma started distributing opioids, uh, specifically uh, Oxycontin, in a lot of rural communities, like factory towns, Mm -hmm. dilapidated towns that have, that had sort of, you know, been left behind to deal with, you know, chronic or acute pain, and then people sort of getting hooked on those opioids, and then the doctors or or the um, pharmacies taking them away, and then them still they those people still being addicted and then going out on the street to get it getting it through heroin right and you know leading to well well the opioid epidemic yeah according to the cdc like the first wave began with like in number of like doctors prescribing like more opioids like you know methadone and everything and that was during the 1990s And the second wave, according to the CDC, again, um, began in 2010 with rapid increases in heroin overdoses. Um, And then they document like a 2013 third wave, um, which includes the synthetic opioids, including fentanyl, um, which like a lot of times my understanding is that like drug dealers and stuff will cut cocaine with fentanyl and so what ends up happening is like people will try and like do coke and then they get like you know this opioid overdose but like you were saying I think like one of the things that gets people hooked on heroin in the first place is because they go from like their painkiller to the like street drug because they their body is like dependent on it at that point and like it's really interesting because I think that, you know, this Johnson and Johnson uh, verdict can be traced back to this tendency that we have in general to overprescribe. Specifically, you know, here we're talking about overprescribing opioids. I mean, even when I got my wisdom teeth out a couple of years ago, they were like, oh yeah, we're going to give you <laughs> this. Like, um, I don't remember the specific drug they wanted to give me. And I'm just really careful about like what I put in my body. So I was like, no, you can give me like the big Tylenols and I will be just fine. But um, yeah, even for something like wisdom teeth, they were like ready to dole that out. And we have to look at like why that is. Yeah. And I think a a large reason is because of just how much power and influence these pharma companies have over, over our government and over our lives. I mean, if you look at going back to the nineties and the early two thousands, like a lot of those towns were, like they were rural towns. I forget there was one, there was one in Virginia that was like really publicized because it was one of the first towns where they, they, they had set up a clinic and where you would get like the diagnosis, like, Hey, here's the pain medication that you need to take. And they set up the pharmacy right next to it. And wow. They were called pill mills where they would just dole out all, all of these prescriptions over prescribing these meds to people. And just like you said, it would lead to people getting addicted to those substances and then, you know, going and getting them on the street when they weren't available medically anymore. And um, you mentioned fentanyl. That is something that's cut, not just with um, crack cocaine, but also also um, heroin. 
And okay. I forget, I, I don't know the exact effect that it has on your body, but it basically acts as a depressant to the point where it slows down your neural communication so much that like a depressant, like alcohol, you know, will slow down your neural communication a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, it'll slow, it'll slow them down so much to the point where like, it'll stop your heart from beating or your blood wow. from flowing. And that's what, that's what ultimately kills people. Yeah. And it's just, it's just really sad how, how the U S really um, has failed to address this. I did want to talk about a model that is working um, the way that Portugal has handled this actually, where they've, they've decriminalized all drugs and they did it back in 2001. So they decriminalized all drugs. And since then they've seen a, a drastic drop in overdoses. They've seen a drastic drop in HIV infections and um, and drug-related crime. Uh, The Guardian has a great piece on this about how basically what they did was they took a a, um, much more humane approach to, uh, you know, dealing with people who had substance abuse issues. You know, so for example, if somebody was addicted, you know, they would have access to, you know, like an attorney and a social worker and a doctor. And then those people could, you know, give them the necessary treatment or, or support that they had or, or the support that they needed um, to get over that. And, um, and yeah, like I said, it led to a drastic decrease in drug usage and a drastic decrease in drug related crime, which is a, which is a side effect of that. Mm -hmm. And so often, you know, we see this in the U S with the prison system is so often our response to anything we perceive as bad is just, you know, lock them up and throw away the key. You know, don't be, don't be humane. Don't be sympathetic at all. And I mean, we know the results of that. It's led to more crime. It's led to a higher recidivism rate than Mm -hmm. other countries with the prisons. Um, And it's led to more um, drug uses and and unfortunately more drug overdoses. So you are seeing some justice with this, with this Johnson and Johnson ruling ruling recently. But, um, but we still do have a lot of work to do on this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like a part of it is like, I mean, it's one thing. I think in both of these cases, you have to combat the problem a different way. Like it's one thing if you have like, you know, someone who was raised in like, you know, a bad environment, they weren't supported. They have, you know, trauma and all these issues that cause them to pick you know, drugs as their way to cope with that. And I think, you know, that can apply to heroin, that can apply to alcohol. But I think it's another case entirely when you are looking at, um, in this case, you know, corporations who are profiting off of people being dependent on a substance. And what's interesting about the opioid epidemic is that there's some overlap in this case. Like, not only is like heroin, like, becoming more popular, but I obviously also it's like, you know, these like Oxycontin and stuff. And if we go back to my example about the wisdom teeth, like I just have to, you know, take a step back and ask why would their default be an opioid rather than the Tylenol? And the next question that I would ask is which is going to make the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies more money for them to prescribe me? Yeah. Well, I think the question is, you know, because Tylenol, if I'm not mistaken, is over the counter, right? Like you can, you can just get it. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is I am arguing that there is a sort of pipeline between big pharma doctors and insurance companies 
because, and this goes back to like, obviously, you know, we're talking about opioids. They have overprescribed opioids. Doctors have, and Johnson and Johnson had a hand in that by like heavily advertising them. You know, there are probably laws that like encourage their use more, which we can see that's evidenced by this new restriction um, in New York that like they can't be advertised a certain way. But like, again, what, what I'm saying is that if I go into the doctor and I say, I've got this problem, the doctor is just going to prescribe me a bunch of pills. And a lot of the time, and you know, this is speaking generally, a lot of the time they don't look at like the underlying causes, like, well, what's your diet? Like, what's your exercise? Like, um, Mm. and they just prescribe because what happens when they do that is they make more money because they can write it up as, oh, she's got some condition. The pharmacy makes money because, you know, they're selling me the pills, pharmaceutical company makes money and my insurance makes money because I'm now on a prescription. So I think that our healthcare system is in essence set up in a way that encourages doctors to put people on medications. So the doctors are like in on it. I don't know. Well, it's funny because I was talking to my buddy about this the other day and he was saying, well, you know, according to what you think about doctors, like (laughs) you could uh, say like ADAB, all doctors are bastards. And I I don't think, you know, because like making the um, connection that like, you know, they're complicit in this system, which is unjust. And I thought about it and I don't think... I think that it's, it's a more complicated web. I don't think that the doctors are like knowingly complicit. I think that it's, it has to do with the way that they're trained and the way that they are like expected by their superiors to, you know, have so many codes that say like, yeah, she's got this, this, and this, and I Mm. prescribed her this, this, and this, and that way you can build the insurance company more. I think it has to do with the way they're trained. Um, okay. I don't think that it's, you know, yeah. a doctor being like, yeah, we're going to make some money off this one. I mean, some sure, but it's almost like, and, and I, I wouldn't suggest this, but it makes me think like, it makes me think of like, like, I know when I used to work in sales, we would get paid by commission. <laughs> it makes me think like, are these doctors getting paid commission to prescribe certain drugs or are they I like having in some cases they are, or are they meeting like some sort of quota and. I, I don't know if it would be that um, I, I, I side with your theory more though, of like, it's almost like a respect in the field type of thing, you know, like people mm-hmm. talk, talk about this a lot. Like when otherwise progressive people go to Congress, they often get sort of in with the club, you know, yeah. where they like start having lunch with people and becoming friends with people who are in the swamp. And so they sort of turn into swamp people and then, and then they, and then they buy into the, like the establishment rhetoric of like, Oh, look at, look at how many bills I got passed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 20 bills that are all terrible for the American people, but Hey, we got, we did it in a bipartisan way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is the way that the healthcare system is set up because of the way that it bills is it's quantity over quality. Right. So it doesn't matter if my patient's necessarily doing better, but look at how many pills they're on. Like, look at how many codes I can enter in. Um, And that's based on, you know, my experience in the healthcare field. That's based on my experience as a patient. Like, I, I think that a lot of the time people aren't really given like a fair shake when it comes to their healthcare because of the profit motive. And again, that's coming from all sides. That's coming from primarily the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies who stand to make money 
the more drugs that people are on. And I can think of a really good solution for this. Can you guess what it is? Legalize all drugs. That's That would be a great step. But I'm thinking like if we had Medicare for all, there would be a lot less profit motive. And I think that the care would be more patient-centered than centered on how much money can we extract Mm -hmm. from a person coming in to see us. Right. Yeah. Because you sort of take out the profit motive and instead, instead of healthcare or insurance, well, I mean, Medicare for all would be the insurer, but instead of the care that people are getting being dictated based on the size of your wallet, it's basically, it's dictated on like how much you need the care. Exactly. You know, like one of, one of the, one of the arguments against Medicare for all is, oh, well, when you remove the profit incentive, um, it's going to, it's going to make these companies not, not be incentivized to, um, to create, you know, their, their drugs. Like, oh, if we, if we give, if we give the, um, the COVID vaccine formula to other companies in other countries like India, then Pfizer is going to be incentivized to, to come up with the, the vaccine. It's like most of these vaccines and cures and you know treatments are come up are are developed at universities by professors and scientists with taxpayer dollars yep and then companies like purdue pharma and pfizer swoop in and buy up the rights and then Mm -hmm. they sell it back to the american people to the tune of billions of dollars (laughs) so so these things are going to be developed regardless but with a medicare for all system um you're right. Then you, you remove the profit incentive and you just prioritize the care. And I yeah. think that would also help us get to, you know, sort of the root cause of, of, of these drug problems. And, and I think what, what you laid out is, is a big contributing factor, but there's also, there's a, a professor uh, named Dr. Carl Hart at Columbia University. If you haven't heard of this guy, go and look him up. He's got a lot of, he's a neuroscientist scientist and a professor of psychology, he's got a lot of really good stuff on drugs. One of the arguments he basically makes is that he says um, the vast majority of people who use drugs like crack cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamines are not addicted and are able to go to work, pay taxes, bills, and take care of their families. Really? You have this relatively small percentage of users becoming addicted. It tells you that it's not the drug itself. So what he's basically talking about in that article is he saying most drug users, the vast majority, actually use drugs at like a steady pace mm-hmm. and they don't like OD, they don't, you know, get addicted to the point where it ruins their life. They, they just use the drug on a regular basis and sure. it's, it works for them. And he mm-hmm. says like the only time you you typically hear about drugs like in the news or in the media is when somebody ODs or somebody dies or or you know somebody commits a crime and you know they were on the drug right look at Kurt Cobain he was still making music he was still performing for a long time doing heroin but then yeah he OD'd it's like or you know quote-unquote OD'd (laughs) it's like (laughs) um you know oh heroin you know and I Uh I am not by any means arguing that it is okay to do heroin in any quantity that's he he kind of argues that like you know, maybe <laughs> like, and, and I, like, this is probably going to sound like really crazy. Like, like if you're a conservative or maybe if you're a rad lib you're, and you're watching this or listening to this, but 
he he talks a little bit about the history too about how like um like chinese immigrants um when they came over like in the mid late 1800s they had the opium dens where they were just you know smoke the opium and there was a lot of hysteria at the time about like you know from like white fathers who thought their daughters were gonna you know go in the opium dens and you know oh, so there's a racial component do, as well yeah and like and they're gonna like get raped by the chinese men doing the opium yeah um but you do have this weird sort of untold american history of like people doing drugs and seemingly being okay and that's kind of what dr carl hart talks about and and he also talks about it was it's like it's been really hard for him to like talk about this stuff out in the open just like as as a professor and as like a scientist because unless you like really know your facts and you really back up your shit it's really hard to be like taken seriously among like other scholars oh "Oh, maybe people should use drugs yeah when it comes to like a you know a take like that where you know obviously the prevailing notion is drugs bad you know straight up it doesn't even matter like people know like alcohol is bad weed is bad you know and and that's just again the prevailing thought and that's just what it is yeah and i think it's it's interesting nick because when you first said that i was like i don't know about that but i i think it's definitely something worth considering worth like opening our minds to because if you think about it like one of the things that comes to my mind is you know i have plenty of friends who they smoke like marijuana, like every day, they need it to feel normal. You know, it calms them down. It, some people claim it makes them more focused and they smoke every day. Is that, you know, addiction? I think a lot of people would say that it is, but I need to take an antidepressant to feel okay every day. So is that an addiction? You know what I mean? And who gets to decide which drugs are okay to be addicted to and which aren't because there's plenty of side effects that come with antidepressants. There's plenty, plenty of risks involved in these pharmaceutical drugs, but we're being sold Mm -hmm. this narrative that, well, you know, if a doctor prescribes it, if it's okay. Yeah. I mean, in antidepressants, I mean, I know just from my experience, like it takes a long time to find an antidepressant that works. You're telling usually. me. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And it, and it sucks because like, once you go on it, you have to wait a few months for it to kick in. Yep. And then you have to wait a few months to go off if it's not working. So yeah, it depends on those. It depends on the person and it depends on the environment. One of the things that he also talks about is he says, this is an article in CBC news. He says, um, Drugs are often used as a scapegoat for other problems, such as poverty and crime, said Hart, adding that drugs are not as addictive as we have been told. Mm -hmm. So what he's suggesting is it's not really the drug that is making the person get addicted, but it's depression, it's poverty, it's crime. Exactly. Exactly. Other problems in the in the person's life that that are making them not just use the drug, but use it excessively to get rid of this underlying pain that they have yeah and then i think you know we talked a little bit about that on one of our last episodes on the drug war is that like part of the solution to you know this like nationwide problem is having compassion for drug users and instead of demonizing them it's considering the factors that cause people to use right and actually understanding you know the sociological impacts understanding the perverse incentives that are 
at play at the pharmaceutical level and trying to figure out how, you know, we can craft public policy and craft, um, you know, a, a, just a culture that, that, you know, views um, people who are addicted to substances in a more sympathetic and empathetic way. Um, because as we've seen in other models around the world, um, it works. Um, people are better off when they do do those things. Absolutely. Before we go, I have to, I have to say something. So we lost an American hero today. Mike Gravel passed away at yeah, the age of 71 or not 71, 91. I'm not sure what the cause of death is, but I would, it's, you know, at the age of 91, you know, I don't think it's wild to assume that, you know, just old age. Sure. Um, but he was great. There's a bunch of videos I've, that have been sort of circling around on Twitter today of him just like schooling Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama back at the, at the old debates, um, schooling them on like nukes and foreign policy. And, and everyone just like laughed at him, but, but he was, he was 100% correct. He was, he was a two-term senator back in the 70s and from Alaska. And two of the most noteworthy things I think that he did, um, number one, he worked to end the draft, which was feeding the Vietnam War. Wow, yeah, um, way ahead and of also, time. Yeah, and also he got the Pentagon Papers from Daniel Ellsberg and used his Senate immunity when nobody else did, nobody had the courage to, to read the Pentagon Papers word for word into the congressional record. Wow. Basically yeah. telling people about how the government was using napalm and agent orange. And I just think it's always worthwhile to recognize these people because whether it's like Martin Luther King Jr. or Daniel Ellsberg or Mike Gravel, like these are people like the people who write history are always people who you see them at the time and they're always like villainized. They're, you know, the radicals. Yeah, they're radicals. They're, you know, they're going against the grain. But the good thing about society and the good thing about people like this is society is always progressing. Society, even though the yep. left does take a lot of losses, probably more <laughs> losses than anybody else. Society is always moving forward, you know. So, you know, just let that be an example to you that even if you sound crazy right now or even if your ideas sound crazy to polite society right now, you know, later down the road, you will be, um, society will vindicate you for, you know, the things that you're doing and the things that you're saying. And I think that, I think that's evident with Mike Gravel and with a lot of other, a lot of other heroes who came before and after him. Absolutely. So he's definitely someone, uh, listeners that you guys should check out if you want to give him a Google and see what he has to say. I agree with Nick 100%. I think, you know, if you're on the far left, which most of our listeners are, it's, it's easy to feel like, geez, like <laughs> how come society isn't like catching up? Like all this stuff makes so much sense to me, which can be said, I suppose, as a viewpoint on either side. But if you look at history, like if you look at the civil rights movement of the 1960s, um, the women's movement, like like Nick said, like we are moving forward. We are progressing, even if it feels slow. Yeah. And it's always because of people like Mike Gravel. I mean, if you didn't have that, 
you know, we might, I mean, you can open up any American history textbook and read about like how the U.S. used napalm and Agent Orange. Yeah. And they'll probably do their, you know, American like whitewashing of it. But we might not have known about that or we might not have known about it until significantly later if if he hadn't done that, for example. Yeah, so, it will be missed. So, definitely. But it is it is a good example that um, even though it, 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 it's easy to get down on yourself if you're on the left, that um, that we are always moving forward. And um, and we will get there eventually. All right. So I guess there's nothing left. <laughs>